Feels like a long time since I've been up here to preach. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the joy of this morning, of being with your people. Every Lord's Day morning, oh Father, it's a, a delight in so many different ways to be with your people in this place, worshiping our Savior, our King. Help us, Father, to see his majesty this morning. And humble us, Lord, to see how insignificant we are and compared to his greatness. And the joy and the purposefulness of living under your lordship and not as autonomous rulers of our own lives. I pray, Father, that you would affect whatever change needs to take place in our hearts. And Father, I will cast this seed very broadly this morning among your people. But you must give the growth. And so we pray, Father, that the seed would find fertile soil this morning, that your, your spirit would come to grow it, grow it deep and bear much fruit for your glory and for our own joy. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, amen. It's a special morning for us as Christians. It's a time when we're reminded of the roots and the foundation of the gospel as we participate in the Lord's table. This morning we're going to be reminded through vivid, spirit-wrought demonstration what it costs the Lord, the King of glory, to justify and cleanse and redeem and adopt sinners like you and me. Sinners who were justly condemned for their treason against the king. It'll be a time of appropriate introspection and a time of joyful communion with Christ and those who call him Lord, not just with their mouths, but with their hearts and with their actions. And I hope you're looking forward to this part of the service when we will take the Lord's Supper together. The message from God's Word this morning, however, will focus on the final part of that gospel message, namely, that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The message this morning is not about a babe in a manger. It's not about a man who was able to work miracles by the power of God. It's not about a savior who offered himself as a sacrifice or a dead man who rose again from the dead. No, the message this morning is about that same man who now sits on the eternal throne of God as the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. This is the king of glory. There's something fundamental, however, at the beginning that you and I must always remember as we approach a text like this one, and it is this. We were made for worship. We were created for worship. We exist to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This morning, we're going to be especially helped in fulfilling that purpose of worshiping God from the heart by opening Israel's ancient hymn book, the Psalms. And so turn with me to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. For centuries, the church has held the Psalms in a central place to point us to Christ, to point us to Yahweh, the God of Israel. They are intended, these psalms, to be sung by a congregation as songs of praise and worship and adoration and thanksgiving unto God. They are given to man to turn our hearts away from the ubiquitous and relentless noise of the world and the constant drumbeat of our daily problems and draw us back to ultimate reality, namely God himself. The book of Psalms has been called the Mount Everest of the Bible. And from it, we see the glory of God with clarity and wonder that we seldom see elsewhere. 
And in his sweet providence, we find ourselves this morning standing on one of the majestic peaks, Psalm 24, which is a powerful example of a psalm especially designed to reorient our minds and our hearts to true north, where we can see the wondrous glory of our God. And so, before we begin the message, let's stand together and read Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Follow along with me now as I read the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of our salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. A short preface to this text seems in order this morning as we begin. Psalm 24 is what is known as a royal psalm. It's a hymn of praise that extols the virtue of God our King. It's a psalm that God's people are not even, or hardly even mentioned in. Rather, the focus of attention is squarely on the King of glory. Historically, this psalm has been viewed as part of a trilogy of psalms, actually. Psalm 22 for the church has always been referred to as the psalm of the cross. You take a step forward, Psalm 23 has been called the psalm of the crook because it's about a shepherd. And then this psalm, the next psalm, Psalm 24, the psalm of the crown. This is the psalm about the king of glory. And our text for this morning is about the psalm of the crown. In all honesty, we, in all honesty, we, don't, we don't really know what the historical setting was for this psalm. If you read the commentators, they all are baffled by it. Some of them try to, to be more dogmatic than others. Some are convinced that it was written to commemorate the day that David took the Ark of the Covenant finally from the house of Obed-Edom, who was being blessed abundantly because the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of the presence of God, was in his house. And David heard that the Lord was blessing him and... It had been some time since they had initially tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Zion. When you remember, a man by the name of Uzzah tried to stabilize the cart because they weren't carrying it properly and God struck him dead. And so there it, there it stayed in Obed-Edom. But David decided it was time to bring it to Jerusalem. And, and many people think that this psalm was the psalm that was written for just that occasion. The text, however, gives no indication of the setting. Rather, it may very well likely be that the psalmist, in this case David, simply set out to write a song that Israel could sing to glory in the majesty and the wonder of their king. Imagine this, David the king writing a song to fix the hearts of the people, not on himself as king, but on Yahweh as king, the Lord as king. It's almost as if David is saying, pay no attention to me. He is the king of glory. At the end of this psalm, we, uh, we are confronted with the central question, who is this king of glory? 
And the psalm as a whole was written to answer that question, introducing us, as it were, to this divine king. David, David offers three themes here to introduce us to the divine king. Number one, the dominion of the king. Number two, the holiness of the king. And number three, the majesty of the king. In verses one and two then, the congregation lifts their collective voice and they sing of the dominion of the king. And here David declares God's sovereign dominion over the earth and all that is in it. Look at verses one and two. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And now it's helpful to observe that in the original Hebrew language, that the very first words of this psalm are not the earth. In Hebrew, uh, the author here, David, wanted to highlight the main point of the text. And the main point of the text is not the earth. The main point of the text is the Lord. And so he begins by saying, the Lord's is the earth. The Lord is central to this psalm. This is emphatic. It's like David was taking a highlighter and highlighting that the key, that the interpretive key to this text. This psalm is not about us. This psalm is not about me. This psalm is not how to love your wife better or to make your business better or to solve your personal problems. That's not what this is about. This is not even about planet Earth. The psalm is about the king of glory who exercises dominion over all things. I find it helpful that the pagans of the ancient Near East viewed gods as those who ruled over certain geographic areas. If by way of illustration, we could think about it like this, if this were true in our day, if we lived in that day, but in this place, we might say there is a God of Fort Worth, and there is another God, a wicked God of Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> or we might say there is the God of Texas, and there was the evil God of New Jersey, you know. In fact, I came across an instance of this just in God's happy providence as I was having my quiet time this week. I ran into this and didn't see anything of significance until I got deeper into this psalm. I was in 2 Kings. I just read one chapter of 2 Kings in my reading plan this week uh, or on that particular day, and I read about how after taking Israel captive, the king of Assyria repopulated the land that is Israel's land, the northern kingdom, came and sacked them, 722, took them all captive. What do we do with the land? Well, he takes all the captives from all the other nations, and he puts them in Israel's place. He repopulates so that he can have control. And uh, the king of Assyria was told, chapter 17, verse 26, um, Here's what happened. These people get into the land that God's people belonged in. God was not at all happy. And so he judges the people when he sends lions, and people are dying. And so word gets sent to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria was told, this is 17 verse 26, that the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of that land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. What's the solution? Well, the next verse reads, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. God of the land. Well, this was a common misunderstanding of the day is that there were many gods who acted as kind of tribal deities. And even Israel sometimes struggled with that. They, they treated God as if he were a tribal deity, that he was only for the Jews. Jehovah is for the Jews only, which was never true. It's never true. But in their minds, that each god ruled over a certain piece of land and a certain people. But, but David knew better. 
David knew better. Yahweh is not merely the God of the Jews. He exercises sovereign dominion over all the earth. Notice in verse 1, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that is in it, all who live in it. In other words, the whole world belongs to God. He owns it all. He owns Fort Worth. He owns Dallas. He even owns Texas. As much as we love our state, it doesn't belong to us. As much as we love our nation, it doesn't belong to us. And we are not free to do with them as we please because we are not king. We don't have dominion. They all belong to God. They exist under his dominion. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. But we just need to make sure that our responsibilities are kept in their proper place. And we understand that the fate of our nation is under God's dominion. It's under his control. And notice how he says, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the fullness here, points to the wealth and fertility of the earth. All the gold in Alaska, all the oil in the Middle East, all the wheat in Kansas, all the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the animals on land, all the money in your bank account, none of it belongs to you. The Lord owns it all. It exists for his satisfaction. It exists for his glory. And it is all under his sovereign domain as king. And so God is the one who gives wealth and takes it away. It is God who sends the rain and calls for drought. But it's not only the resources of the earth that King Yahweh lays claim to. It's also the people of the earth. More importantly, it's the people of the earth. This is where we come in. The world and those who dwell therein. What does that mean? In a word, you are not your own. If you dwell in this world, now how many of you dwell in this world? If you dwell in this world, you are not your own. You are not your own. And I'm not even going to insert what Paul said, you were bought with a price. We're not that, to that part in history yet. We are in Old Testament Psalms, David is king. David is saying this. You are not your own. You belong to Yahweh. He is the king of glory. You may love your wife, but she ultimately doesn't belong to you. You may love your children, but they don't belong to you. Someone will say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, you may not believe in gravity either, but that doesn't change the reality of what will happen to you if you jump off the roof. And since you exist in God's domain, you owe your allegiance to God as your true and rightful king. You can choose to give him what is rightfully his, or you can resist him. He is the only one with the wisdom and authority to tell you how to govern your life for your good and for his glory. And those who are wise willingly rank themselves under his rule. And then again, the opposite is also true. Listen, listen, listen to this. I want you all eyes up here for a minute. And I want you to hear this statement and I want you to talk about it in your small group. Hidden under every sin is a desire and demand for self-rule. Hidden under every sin is a desire and demand for self-rule, for autonomy, for being out from under authority. Every time I face temptation, I find myself in a battle for control. And every time I sin, I declare my independence from the rule of the Lord of glory. In my heart, I establish my own kingdom. And in this kingdom, I exercise what seems to me to be autonomous rule over my own life. And that 
insistence of ruling over my own kingdom. It's a direct opposition to the king under whose domain I live and breathe. This, beloved, is the war beneath all wars. This is the fight beneath all fighting. This is the battle at the root of all battles. Who will be king? Who will be king? Furthermore, this is a war I can never win. If I'm warring against the king of glory, it's a war I can never win. Why? Because God's dominion over my life is no more in question than the law of gravity. Every time I fight it, I lose. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who dwell in it. I belong to him. He does not belong to me. Hear this, beloved. God does not belong to you. You don't get to tell him what to do. You don't get to manipulate him. You don't get to change him. You say, well, I don't believe in a God who is jealous. You don't get that option. He's a jealous God. That doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you may say, I don't believe in a God of wrath. Doesn't matter. Again, you may not believe in gravity. It makes no difference. He is what he is. He has revealed himself very clearly. And the earth is the Lord's and all who dwell in it. And so his rule over average people like you and me is equally absolute to his rule over all kings and those in authority in the earth. Daniel 3.34, we read this. This is one of those nations. I told you about how Assyria came and sacked the northern tribe of Israel in 722. In 586 B.C., the southern tribe was sacked by Babylon under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And so here we read at the end of Nebuchadnezzar, after God judges Nebuchadnezzar and he returns, his senses return, he writes this. At the end of the days, that's the days of God's judgment on him, I, Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, was the president of the world's only superpower of the day, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the most high. Was, was Nebuchadnezzar high? Yeah, he was king. But the Lord is the most high and I praised and honored him who lives forever. Listen, for his dominion is everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is the Lord's dominion. He owns it all. He owns everything that we have. He owns everything that we think we have. It all belongs to him. It all exists for his glory. Uh, my son Wesley called home last night, and he said, Dad, I got a question. Anytime he hears something at his school that sounds a little bit off theologically, he calls me. And he said, I had a qu test question today, and it was, uh, what is man's purpose in the world? And him being a good worldview student, or me being a good worldview teacher, I immediately responded, uh, well, son, you know the answer. Um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he said, good, that's what I wrote. But that's not what they taught. <laughs> they had a secondary issue, which I think is secondary, and we won't get into that. But the earth is the Lord's. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so the earth is the Lord's. But we might ask, by what authority by what authority does Yahweh exercise dominion over the world? Answer, by the authority of creation. God rules the world because he created it. Look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And I wish we had time this morning, but we don't, to talk about how the ancient Near East viewed water as a symbol of chaos but we'll talk a little bit about it. This is, this is creation language. It's the most important part. 
of this, you need to understand that he's talking about creation. He founded it, or he laid the earth's foundations. That's past tense. He did that in the past. And, and then, perhaps a better translation of the next phrase would be, he establishes it. That is, this is present tense. He is establishing, or he established it. This is, this is active maintenance, sustaining the earth. This, too, is part of Yahweh's dominion over the world. He not only created the world, but he sustains the world. If we would fast forward from Psalms 24 to the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 1, we would hear Paul say that Jesus, by him, all things were created in heaven and in earth, and in him all things hold together. In him all things keep their integrity. Again, the author of Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by his powerful word. Scientists have never been able really fully to understand what keeps an atom from flying apart because the protons and neutrons, and I'm not a scientist, but I've read again and again, you know, what they used to call it, they've changed the name and I don't remember now, but they used to just call it the strong force. The strong force. And I would just call it Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> it is a strong force. It is, it is the same force by which the earth was created. It is Yahweh, or in, in Paul's words, it is Jesus Christ who in him all things are held together. This, beloved, explains why there is order in the world. And I don't think we understand the significance of this because we just live, we're busy in our own heads doing our own things. But why does, why does the world work? Why does the cosmos work? Uh, why, why can astronauts, why, why can uh, uh, guys who work for NASA how can they shoot a rocket from here and hit an asteroid out there and just nail it? How does that kind of math work? It's only one answer. The universe is orderly, and it is predictable. This is why mathematics can be used to understand the complexity of the ordered creation the fact that God created and sustains all things is the basis not only of math and physics, but the basis of logic. Why do we argue logically? And why can we make predictions about the future? Uh, Mike and I, uh, my, my son and I were taking a long drive one day, and, and he likes listening to, to tech uh, blogcast, uh, what do you call them, podcast, blobcast, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And there was one about lasers we were listening to, and they talked about how Albert Einstein, his observations of the stable complexities of light, by them he was able to predict that someday it should be possible to create a beam of light that, be con that can be controlled and used in a productive manner by average people. Fast forward decades later, some scientists who have been studying Albert Einstein's theories of light were able to take his observations about the stable complexities of light and create the first, what? Laser. I find that amazing, but not surprising. You see, chaos doesn't beget chaos. I'm sorry, it doesn't beget order. Chaos doesn't beget order. Order and complexity only arise out of order and complexity. The cosmos is orderly and predictable because God, who created all of it, sustains it as a God of order who holds all things together. I realize this flies in the face of evolutionary theory, but listen, nothing plus no one equals everything has never been a satisfying theory in my mind. There is no observable moment in time when that theory could actually be seen. And such theorizing is, is not based on observable science. It's, it's merely blind faith. 
It's blind faith. What we do observe in science is that order and complexity always have their, self, their source in something more complex and orderly than itself. How do we explain the deep complexities of the cosmos? Well, simple. Here's the equation. Nothing plus God equals everything. You say, well, that's just faith. Yeah, but we're honest about that. <laughs> we say we believe this book and it has been verified in science again and again and again. And you on the other side <clears throat> who hold to evolutionary theory, you also are operating on your faith, but you call it science. So you don't have to admit that you're playing the same game. Nothing plus God equals everything he spoke he sp that is so much easier to believe. He spoke. This, beloved, is the domain of the king. And it brings us to the second part of the psalm. We've seen the dominion of the king in verses 1 and 2, and it tears my heart out that we have to move along like this. But verse 3, verses 3 through 6, let me read them again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Sound like we're reading Romans? This is Old Testament. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Yahweh, of Jacob, the God of Jacob. Believe it or not, David wants us to sing about the moral qualifications necessary for an audience with the king. There are moral qualifications to have an audience with the king. Now, this is delightfully surprising if you think about it. Because here we've just learned that the king of glory is the creator of all things, creator of the earth. He doesn't mention the stars here, the cosmos, but he created that too. And now we discover that this highly exalted king is actually approachable. He's approachable. Apparently, God desires to live in relationship with the people he has created. How else can we understand the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can come before him to worship? So I said in the beginning, the purpose we were created for worship of the God who created all things. And now David is saying, okay, let's talk about the next thing. If there is a God who created all things and he wants us to worship him, then who's qualified to do that? Who's qualified to come into his presence and worship him? That's a good question, isn't it? Clearly, this is a reference to the hill upon which Jerusalem was built, and specifically that part of the hill where the tabernacle and later the temple was established. This was the designated place of Jewish worship, the worship of Yahweh, and where they had the sacrifices and, and all the pageantry and, and everything where, where, where the priests would do their thing to offer an atoning sacrifice and all kinds of free will sacrifices and thanksgiving sacrifices. It was the place for the worship of their God. And then, to the question, who is qualified to stand in that king's presence? The answer comes in the form of a basic list of qualifications. Let's consider them. And by the way, in uh, Psalm 15, there's a longer list. We don't have time to look at that this morning. Just You can look at that later. Clean hands has to do with pure behavior, a life that pursues active goodness and righteousness and resists temptation. These are outer man issues. These are behavior issues. Pure heart. Pure heart speaks to man's attitudes, motives, intentions. This is his inner man. We've, we've said many, many times here, in this church, that sin and righteousness are always matters of the what? The heart. And so there's, there's cleanness in the outer man. I mean, he just, his reputation demonstrates that he's a man who loves and trusts God. And he's not just the 
outward, but the inward. God looks at the outside of man, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so you need to have a pure heart as well. Number four, I'm sorry, number, oh, verse four, (laughs) number three. Uh, He does not lift up his soul to what is false. Now, what is false specifically here has to do with idolatry. He doesn't lift up his heart in worship to the wrong object of worship, which is any object of worship who is not the king of glory. It's a prohibition against idolatry, which was the thing the Lord hated more than anything else. Number four, he does not swear deceitfully. In other words, he isn't dishonest. He's not deceitful. He doesn't trick people. His yes is yes and his no is no. And people can trust him. This is the kind of person who's pure on the inside, pure on the outside. It needs to be said here that the Lord is not talking about moral perfection. He is describing people who were counted righteous in God's sight by virtue of their faith in God's commands and promises. And that faith is expressed in holy living, though that holy living is not perfect. You say, I, I, I thought he required a perfect righteousness. He does. But that's not what he's talking about here. There were all kinds of men in the Old Testament who were called righteous men. Job was a righteous man. You think of Simeon was a righteous man. You think of the disciples were righteous men. David was a man after God's own heart. He was labeled a righteous man. And and in fact, in the Psalms, David says, Lord, deal with me according to my righteousness. He was talking about his reputation, the reality that in his heart of hearts he wanted to be holy. He pursued holiness. He sought obedience. He wasn't trying to get out from under God's authority. He was wrestling with his heart to always get back under God's authority. It was never perfect. But it was a righteousness that came by faith. Does that sound like something you've heard before. Martin Luther, the Reformation, what ignited the Reformation? Martin Luther's discovery of the verse that's always been there and quoted in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's always been that way. It's always been that right that way. Those whom God counts righteous are people who believe They trust, they love God. They hate their sin. You remember the publican at the temple? Okay, Old Testament, right? It's recorded for us in what we call the New Testament, but it's a a record that is technically Old Testament because it's for the cross, right? Publican at the temple. And there he is, praying at the temple as a good Jew. And, uh, and, Let's see, the publican and the tax collector. So let's say Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee's over there. God, I thank you that I am righteous. Sounds like he's giving praise to God. But he's really talking about his own ability to satisfy God by his actions. And here we have the tax collector, the publican over here. And he won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he says... God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And in the original language, it says this, God, be propitiated toward me. You know what propitiation is? It's offering a sacrifice to appease the wrath of the king. Where was he? He was in the temple. What happens in the temple? The lambs, the animals are killed as a propitiation to satisfy the just and holy wrath of God. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went home justified. By what? By his faith. Evidenced also by faith that bears fruit. In this case, humility and confession. 
Righteousness has always been graciously imputed to sinners on the basis of faith. Hence, when Paul takes pains to explain the gospel, he declares on the basis of the Old Testament teaching that the just shall live by faith. They are considered righteous in God's sight because of their faith. And that faith produces practical righteousness. James seizes upon this and says, "You, um, faith without works is what? Dead. No fruit. No root. And he repeatedly says, you may say, you may say, but your words are meaningless if there is not the fruit. Listen to how David says it in verse 5. This is the kind of God, this is the kind of man that God considers righteous, a man who has clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't deceive. He worships God. He's imperfect, yes. But listen to how the Lord responds to such a man. Verse 5, he will receive a blessing from the Lord. By the way, covenant blessing. He will receive covenant blessing from the Lord. And what's the next word? Righteousness. What righteousness? Whatever righteousness he needs to stand in the presence of God. Righteousness from the God of his salvation. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Think about it. On the one hand, a way has been established for you to actually enjoy face time with God every day. Face time with the King of glory. On the other hand, no one should think that they, could, that they can casually saunter into, the, into God's presence without consider, any kind of consideration of the condition of their heart or their behavior. True Christians understand that they will never attain perfection. They will never be perfectly holy or moral. But they want it. They strive for it. They strive not to earn salvation, but simply to please the one who loves them so much that he was willing to suffer death in their place. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If God has granted you the righteousness of Christ, that righteousness will be evident in your life, a practical righteousness. Such imperfect people are loved by God and welcomed into his presence. That's why I said this is really a delightful section when you think about it. Such people are welcome into his presence. He counts them righteous. He counts them righteous on the basis of their faith in him. And the proof of their faith is their consecrated lives, imperfect though they may be. I don't know about you. I love Jesus Christ. I love God. You know what else is true about me? I'm a sinner still. I hate my sin. And I love my sin. I hate my sin. I love my sin. I hate my sin. I love Jesus. Thanks be to God. David has had us sing about the dominion of the king and the holiness of the king. And finally, so much more should be said. And this is a taste of the holiness of the king. Now we come to the majesty of the king. <laughs> I like this part. Listen to this, beginning with verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So the scene here is painted for us of a warrior king returning to Jerusalem in victory over his enemies. As he approaches the gates of the city, the choir leading the procession before the king begins chanting or singing out to the gates that apparently are closed. And they are singing in 
in such a song that personifies the gates as if they were living creatures. And they cry out to the gates and they say, lift up your heads, O gates. You kind of imagine there's a couple of kinds of gates that are, that are there. There's that one, you know, it kind of has a door that you kind of have to stoop to get in. They, they d- built them that way so that it was difficult for the enemy to get in, and you would have to stoop a little bit. But if the king was coming, you lifted up the big gate. I forget what it's called, the, the, not the trellis, the something. And, and w- the whole thing would lift up. And the choir is singing, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then, from behind the great walls of the city, a voice comes back. Who is the king of glory? And the representative, the spokesman of the king, cries back, Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle, And again, the choir sings, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And again, the voice comes back over the wall, who is this king of glory? And the spokesman of the king declares emphatically, Yahweh of hosts, which means the captain of an army of angels. Lift up your gates. Yahweh of hosts is here. He is the king of glory. Beloved, this is, I think, no theological stretch to conclude that this Yahweh of hosts who holds all things together is none other than the second person of the Trinity. But in this scene, he is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He is the great warrior king, He was created for himself a people, and every day he is building and defending those people. And by the way, it's more than a little interesting to me to learn that during the exile into Babylon, the southern kingdom was taken into Babylon, the Jews developed a tradition of reading prescribed psalms. There was a prescribed psalm for every day of the week, and the priest would go to Uh, the outer gate of the temple, and every day a priest would go out, and as loud as he could read for for a crowd to hear, he would read the first day of the week, the second day of the week, and every day was a prescribed psalm. Psalm 24 was designated for the first day of the week, which happens to be Sunday. Now, I don't make a lot about that, But every Sunday morning, listen to this, the priest would come to the outer gate of the temple, they would read aloud on the first day of the week, Psalm 24. And I can't help but observe that on one particular first day of the week, as the temple priests on that very morning were declaring Psalm 24, Jesus mounted a donkey. And the crowds declared, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. O son of David, what does that mean? Heir to the throne, king, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Who is this king of glory? He is the sovereign king whose dominion envelops all creation. He is the thrice holy king who invites us into fellowship. In fact, not just us, but all who share in his holiness. And he is the warrior king who defeats every foe until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Beloved, behold your king. This is the king of glory. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown, the psalm of the reigning king. And if we would turn back half a page, we would read about the shepherd king, who is known for leading his people to green pastures and quiet waters and also protecting them from the enemy, even leading them through the valley of the shadow of death. But they have no need to fear. Why? Because their shepherd king is with them. 
This is the psalm of the crook, Psalm 23. And if we turn back another half page again, we would read the psalm of the cross. In preparation for the Lord's table, I'd like to take just a moment to read a few short excerpts from the psalm of the cross. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, from, for he delights in him. Verses, verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Who is this king of glory? He is the king who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow to this king. Bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? He is the king of glory. Father, what a magnificent text of Scripture. And how dependent are we on you to fully grasp the glory of it. So we praise you for it. We ask you to give us eyes to see, and ears to hear. And even now, as we come before the King to remember the ultimate sacrifice that the King of glory made for us. Melt our hearts and give us eyes to see our sin and humility to confess it. May your name be exalted in our hearts. May Jesus Christ reign supreme in us for his glory and for our own joy, we pray.